We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 18, if you have your Bibles. 1 Kings chapter 18, right around the one-third mark of your Bible is where you'll find that, 1 Kings chapter 18. I was having a conversation recently uh, with a friend, uh, someone who's not a follower of Jesus, uh, but who I've had a number of spiritual conversations with over the last number of years. And my friend made a point, which wasn't the first time I've ever heard him or other non-believers make this point, but it was one that particularly stuck out to me. He said, he said this, why do so many Christians that I've met seem so different than Jesus? Let me say it again. Non-believer, having spiritual conversations with me, a pastor, why do so many Christians I've met look so little like Jesus? It's interesting, you know, there, there, there's two reasons that could be the case. Number one is, he, and he does, he has a very wrong perception of what it means to be a Christian. And so it could be some of what he's experiencing is not understanding what Christians are, not getting it, that we stand on the word of God and we're unapologetically standing on the word of God. That could be part of his misunderstanding. But there's another part to it as well. And I think if we're honest as Christians, there might be a part of it that even in our own lives, there are areas of our life, areas of Christianity, areas of evangelicalism, kind of the larger umbrella of Christians that we, that we fall into, that... Uh, a lot of times Christians don't look a lot like Jesus. Maybe they do on a Sunday when they come into church, but then throughout the week when you get to know them, you see their life, you see the rhythms of their life, you see the way they interact with each other, there actually isn't a lot of Jesus-likeness in their life. I wonder how much of what he was saying is true. Do you know what a true Christian is? And what it means to follow Jesus? Let me say that question again. I know majority in this room would take the title Christian. But do you know what it means to follow Jesus? Are you a true Christian? Are you a counterfeit Christian? Today we continue our sermon series titled Great Stories. And what we're doing is we're going through Old Testament stories. And what we've tried to show in this sermon series is that the Old Testament is alive. I heard a pastor foolishly say we need to abandon the Old Testament. Far from it. No, we need more of the Old Testament. The same God of the Old Testament is the same God of the New Testament. He's unchanging. He's unchanging. And all the stories of the Old Testament have something to teach us. And so we've been going through the Old Testament understanding the story and then trying to draw out truth. How do we apply it into our lives as modern-day Christians living today? Today we come across this remarkable story, Elijah, the prophet Elijah. A little bit of a backstory for you. This is a story of a great showdown between a prophet of God, Elijah, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, and the false prophets of a false god named Baal, one of the main false gods that people in the Mediterranean worshipped during the Old Testament days. He was well-known, not just in the Bible, but in other you know, books that we find from other cultures. Baal was a well-known false god. Well, there was a drought in the land, and uh, the prophet Elijah was sent to King Ahab. Now, Ahab, so you know, was the king of Israel, and he was considered one of, if not the most, wicked king that Israel had ever had. He married a woman named Jezebel, and Queen Jezebel was a horrendously evil person. And Ahab really let Jezebel rule the roost. She would tell him to do things, and he would kind of just go along with it. Even when he thought it was a bad idea, he'd go along with it. And he ended up doing terrible things. And the one thing Ahab hated above all other things was Elijah. 
He couldn't stand the true prophet of God because Elijah told the truth. He wouldn't just say what the king wanted him to say. He'd tell the truth. Well, as we get to our story today, Ahab, Elijah, goes to Ahab. It's been a handful of years of drought at this point, and the drought's about to come to an end, but before the drought comes to an end, Elijah is going to say something to Ahab, and he's going to prove that that true worship of God needs to be restored to the land of Israel, because underneath Ahab's reign, all of Israel had fallen into idolatry. So rather than tell you the story, my version, I'm going to let the text speak to itself. It's a fairly easy story to follow along with. We're going to read 1 Kings 18, verses 17 through 40. When Ahab saw Elijah, Ahab said to him, Is it you, you troubler of Israel? (laughs) Elijah answered, I have not troubled Israel, but you have. You and your father's house, because you have abandoned the commandments of the Lord, and you have followed the Baals. Now, therefore, send and gather all Israel to me at Mount Carmel, and the 450 prophets of Baal, and the 400 prophets of Asherah, who eat at Jezebel's table. So Ahab sent to all the people of Israel. He gathered the prophets together at Mount Carmel. And Elijah came near to all the people and said, How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people did not answer him a word. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only, am left a prophet of the Lord. Now pause there. He's actually wrong. The prophet Obadiah in the previous chapter had saved the lives of a hundred other prophets, hiding them in a cave. The Lord had spared a number of people, but he's looking at this scene and he's saying, I'm the only true believer in this place. Then Elijah said to the people, I, even I only am left a prophet of the Lord, but Baal's prophets are 450 men. Let two bulls be given to us and let them choose one bull for themselves, one bull for the 450, and cut it in pieces and lay it on the wood, but no fire to it. And I'll prepare the other bull, and I'll lay it on the wood and put no fire to it. Pause. The prophet Elijah is setting up this competition between Elijah and the false prophets of Baal. Verse 24. And you call upon the name of your God, I'll call upon the name of the Lord. And the God who answers by fire, he is God. And all the people said, that's well spoken. And then Elijah said to the prophets of Baal, Choose for yourselves one bull and prepare it first, for you are many. Call upon the name of your God, but put no fire to it. And they took the bull that was given them, and they prepared it. And they called upon the name of Baal from morning until noon, four to six hours, saying, O Baal, answer us! But there was no voice. No one answered. And they limped around the altar that they had made. And at noon, Elijah mocked them saying, cry aloud, for he is a God. Either he is musing or he's relieving himself, or he's on a journey, or maybe he's asleep and he's got to be wakened up. And so they cried aloud and cut themselves after their custom with swords and lances until the blood gushed out upon them. And as midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation. But there was no voice. No one answered. No one paid attention. Then Elijah said to the people, come near to me. And all the people came near to him, and he repaired the altar of the Lord that had been thrown down. Elijah took 12 stones, according to the number of the tribes of the sons of Jacob, to whom the word of the Lord came, saying, Israel shall be your name. And with the stones, he built an altar in the name of the Lord. And he made a trench about the altar, as great as would contain two seahs of seed. And he put the wood in order and cut the bull in pieces, and he laid it on the wood. 
And then he said, fill four jars with water and pour it on the burnt offering and on the wood. And he said, do it a second time. And he did it a second time. He said, do it a third time. Pause. Why is he doing that? He's stacking the odds against himself. He, he's saying, God's not only going to rain down fire and bring this bull up, but let's make it soaking wet to make it even harder for him to do so. And they did it a third time, verse 35. And the water ran around the altar and filled the trench also with water. And at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and he said this, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel and that I'm your servant and that I've done all these things at your word. Answer me, O Lord, answer me that this people might know that you, O Lord, are God, and that you have turned their hearts back. Then the fire of the Lord fell and consumed the burnt offering and the wood and the stones and the dust, and it licked up the water that was in the trench. And when all the people saw it, they fell on their faces, and they said, The Lord, he is God. The Lord, he is God. And Elijah said to them, Seize the prophets of Baal. Let none of them escape. And they seized them. And Elijah brought them down to the brook Kishon. And he slaughtered them there. The word of the Lord. Now what can we make of this story? How do we apply this into our modern day? Well, Let's just think about this for a moment. You don't need me to retell it. I think you followed it pretty well. This is a remarkable story. And at the center of it is God's victory over false worship. God will have victory over all false worship. There were prophets of Baal, and they were leading the people of God astray. They were leading Israel astray, and it seemed for a season that they were winning. It seemed for a season that the true believers, the true prophets, had gone away, that it would never be restored. But at the end of the day, if this story teaches us anything, God will have his day in court, and the worship of the one true and living God will be restored. That's what this teaches us. It's a type. It's pointing us to ultimately towards Christ's ultimate victory when he returns and every knee will bow and worship the one true and living God, proclaiming that he is God. In this story, what I'd like to do today is there are three different categories of people in this group, in this text today. And they all respond to the story that we saw in three different ways. There are the false prophets there's the true prophet, and then there was the rest of Israel. And, and Isaiah, or Elijah called them limpers, limping between Baal and the God of the Bible. What I'm going to do with the remaining of our time is I'm going to look at all three of those people, and I'm going to consider them of what it means for us today in today's categories of individuals. Let's begin with the first one, the prophets of Baal. In the story, we saw that the prophets of Baal were vehemently opposed to the God of the Bible. They hated the God of the Bible. In fact, they had spent considerable time killing the prophets of God that were in the Old Testament, so much so that in the previous chapter, Obadiah, a different prophet, hid a hundred of the true prophets of God in a cave to save their life. They not only hated the God of the Bible, but they worshipped directly and actively different gods. And they were not just doing it lightly. Remember 1 Kings 18, 29? As midday passed, they raved on until the time of the offering of the oblation but there was no voice, no one answered, and no one paid attention. Now, these prophets of Baal had all the religious zeal in the world. In terms of zeal, 
they had pretty much everyone I've ever met, save a few, beat. But their end was certain. It was always destruction. The end of the story, alarming to our modern ears, is that all of them died underneath judgment. They were all killed. Now, who are the prophets of Baal today? Well, in a very direct way, I can think of a number of voices that I've seen in modern culture that are hostile against the God of the Bible. I'm thinking of people like Richard Dawkins, well-known modern public scientist who very regularly spouts atrocious things about the God of the Bible, the things that come out of his mouth. Or you think of Sam Harris. These people are called, uh, Richard Dawkins and Sam Harris are, are two of the four horsemen of the new atheism. The new atheism being just this hostile atheism that doesn't just want to believe there's no God, but wants to take down the God of the Bible. You think of men like Bill Mayer, well-known comedian, political pundit, all the time speaking wicked in a public form about the God of the Bible. Certainly, I'd say they categorize as prophets of Baal. They're false, they're false witnesses who hate and despise the God of the Bible. But I think actually we should, we should broaden our category a little bit. That, that, that gets a lot of people off the hook. There are other prophets of Baal in culture today, and it can come in the form of false religion. Believing God to be someone or something other than who he actually is. Islam. Anyone who worships the false god of Islam, Allah, is like a prophet of Baal, worshiping a false god. Those who worship gods like Krishna, Buddha, Mormonism, Jehovah's, Witnessum, Jehovah's Witnesses. What are, what are these? They're worshiping false gods. Even something like Jehovah's Witness, which claims they worship Jesus, has in fact redesigned Jesus to be something entirely different than what we see in the scriptures. So much so that they've made him into a false god. And they're worshiping that false god openly and blatantly. Again, false gods. What are they doing? It's the same thing as the prophets of Baal. They're worshiping false gods. In our modern day, we might add another category to this because it's grown so large as the false gods of atheism and agnosticism. Yes, these are faiths. As much as a modern atheist would say, I don't have faith, yes, you do. In fact, I would say it takes far more faith to be an atheist than it does to be a Christian. You have to believe, despite evidence to the contrary, that there is no God and that Christ was not resurrected from the grave. That's an impossible belief to believe with all the evidence. Yet, they believe it and they have it by faith. And remember, zeal is not the issue. Zeal is not the issue. It's not just a matter of, having, of being religious, of being spiritual and having a passion for it and going to the places where people who are religious tell you you're supposed to go and doing the things that people who are religious tell you you're supposed to do. Remember, these prophets of Baal, they raved on and on. They cut themselves. They were ascetics. People who injured themselves for the sake of religion in order to prove their their holiness to whatever God was trying to listen to them. Their issue was not zeal. Their issue was that their worship was aimed at something that was not true. And there was judgment for that. Now, I've had this conversation enough times that I know what a number of people are saying right now. They'll say something like this. But God would not judge me so harshly as a prophet of Baal. I've not been so wicked so as to deserve death. I'm a friendly person. I'm a rational person. 
Certainly there are others who have done far greater evil than me. I don't need to be lumped into the prophets of Baal category just because I haven't believed in Jesus as Lord. In our modern day, that sentiment tickles most ears. But if we can be very clear, your question, that doubt, reveals your guilt. Why? Because your very question reveals your hostility to the one true and living God as he has revealed himself in Scripture. And what your question and what your doubt is posing is you are suggesting that God is something very different than what he has said he is in scripture. You are suggesting that it does not matter what we do with Jesus Christ. It does not matter whether we say he is Lord and receive him as our savior or whether we say we're not sure whether he is Lord or not. Certainly God won't judge us on one little decision like that. You have redefined God in your own image, which is what all false religion is. The essence of false religion is saying, who do I want God to be? Well, I don't want him to judge me for decisions about what I think he is, so I think he'll receive all things, as long as I'm a kind person. That's making God in our own image. It's taking what we think he ought to be like and saying, that's who God is. Praise God he's not who I think he ought to be like. Praise God that the one true and living God exists outside of this little mind right here, with this little wickedness that goes on in this mind. Yes, praise God that he is real, and he's far superior to that. Psalm 2, verse 12 says, Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way. For his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. When I was 17 years old, I was on a hellish path. I, uh, I did, not know the, did not know the Lord Jesus. I, uh, to be honest, I'd never been introduced to the Lord Jesus. I had been around a Catholic church from time to time growing up, but no one had ever actually explained the gospel to me. I had images of Jesus in my mind, but... Uh, They were nothing close to what was true of who God is and who Jesus was. And I remember my life was increasingly, as I went on through my high school years as a senior in high school, was increasingly being filled with debauchery with my friends. I was on a path that was leading to nowhere good very quickly. And my friends had gotten, uh, by God's grace, I'd been spared some of what I'd seen my other friends getting into at the time. But uh, I knew I was just trailing behind them just a little bit. And one particular evening, I, I came home. And I, and I had been drinking. And I came home and I, I got on my knees and with the, the, the frame of mind that I had still left in me that evening, I, I got on my knees and I had been sensing this in my heart for a while. But I cried out and I didn't know anything about God. But I said, God, if you're real and if you're there, then drag me out of this. And then here's what I said, because this feels empty. This feels empty. Now, an hour previous to that, I was the life of the party. If you would have looked at me from the outside, you would have said, he doesn't feel empty, he feels full. There's energy, he's smiling. Isn't that what we do? We put on a veneer around the people we want to look like we have it all together and we have a full life and we post the best Facebook pictures of, or whatever app you use, Instagram. You, you post the best version of yourself so that others look in, but, but meanwhile... There is an emptiness that lingers when you do not know the true and living in God. Why? Because no one was there when you called. No one answered when they raved on and on. If you're in this room today and you've never believed in Christ, I want to offer him to you today. He stands ready to receive you. Christ is the true and living God. 
God is a trinity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Jesus stands with open arms, ready to forgive you for your false worship today. And it does not matter how much you have poured yourself out into false paths before, I'm telling you, those paths lead only to destruction. God does not, is not one who will be mocked. He does not receive worship of false gods as true and proper worship. There is penalty for that. But if you will receive it, Christ stands ready to forgive you. Here's what it requires of you. You have to come to the end of yourself. This is something we don't talk about in Christianity. And what do I mean by coming to the end of yourself? You have to look upon the good and holy law of God on his terms. And you have to say, I do not live up to this standard. I have fallen short in my mind, in my actions, and there's nothing I could ever do to stand before a holy God on my judgment day and be received with warmth by him. The only hope I have is if God does something and then to look to Christ on the cross and see a savior who was crucified, who went underneath the wrath of God for you, pouring his blood out, experiencing death in all of its consequences so that you would not have to. God has done something so that when you stand on your judgment day, God will not hold you accountable for your own actions of false worship, but he held Jesus accountable on your behalf. You must come to the end of yourself. The great pastor Thomas Boston, he said these words. He said, the heart of, speaking to a non-believing heart, he said, the heart of stone within you is a sinking weight. As a stone naturally goes downward, so the hard, stony heart tends downward to the bottomless pit. You are hardened against reproof. Though you're told of your danger, yet you will not see it, you will not believe it. He says, you can hear someone up here saying, Christ will forgive you all day long. Christ will receive you. There's life to the full to be had. There's someone who will be there. He's there. I am living testimony. He's there. And you can say in your heart, I won't receive him. And that sinking stone will drink you down to the bottom of the ocean. Don't let that be you today. Don't let that be you today. Do not leave this room. If you came in here today with your heart hardened to Christ, but you found yourself in this room, before you leave, receive Jesus. You have to have a, like a heart like a child waking up on Christmas morning and, and seeing all the Christmas presents laid out underneath the Christmas tree. Look at Jesus that way and say, could it really be that good? Could it truly be that he's there and he will forgive all of it? That's the heart of a Christian. And if you will have that heart today, he will receive you and forgive you of every sin you have ever committed this morning. He will welcome you into his kingdom. The false prophets of God. And there's two other categories of people in this story. The second category I want to deal with is one that in this room is probably more prevalent than the first. And that is the limpers. The limpers of Israel. Isaiah, the prophet Elijah looked to all of Israel and he said, how long will you go limping between gods? If God is God, then follow him. If Baal is God, then follow him. And what did the people of Israel do? They said nothing. <laughs> they were afraid to respond to him. They were afraid to put their foot one way or the other. They just wanted to limp along, play it as safe as they could and see which guy won in the end. That was their strategy. Limpers. The church today is full of limpers, nominal Christians who attend church, who take the title Christian, but who truly are unsaved. Jesus taught us in, chapter, in John chapter three, he said these words, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. 
Let those words sink in. We throw them around, but you have, to, you, have to, you have to let that one sink into your heart. Unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. We live at a place in which cultural Christianity has become so normalized. Now, don't get me wrong. I actually love the idea of cultural Christianity. Here's what I mean by that. I love the idea that Christianity would so infuse a culture because faithful Christians are living out their life and, and having an impact on all aspects of society that it just becomes normal to be Christian, to pray with your neighbor. That's a good thing. We should all say, Lord, would it become true that Chicago one day, it would be the norm for the culture to just be Christian? That would be a good thing. I love that idea. But one of the negative fruits of cultural Christianity is that it's very easy to deceive yourself that you're a Christian because you've done a couple things that Christians do. Like prayed a prayer one day that said, Jesus, forgive me of my sins. Just because you said those words one day does not mean that you are an authentic follower of Jesus. It's possible to mouth those words, to even say them with emotion one day, and to not actually follow Jesus. It's possible to get baptized and not actually follow Jesus. It's possible to go to church regularly and not actually follow Jesus. It's possible to become a member of a church, meet with me, and convince me that you're a Christian. And me let you into church membership, because that's a qualification to become a member here. You gotta be a Christian. It's possible to dupe me and not be a Christian. Let me lay out for you a diagnostic of a limper so that you can examine your own heart. And I'm not gonna hold back. I'm gonna, I'm gonna actually be very clear with you what my intentions are today. I believe that in American Christianity, and I'm just gonna assume in this room, I'm not thinking of anybody in particular, I'm just assuming in a room this size, there are a lot of limpers in this room. And my heart is that before you leave today, you would leave as a true follower of Jesus. That you would do business with the Lord and you would not be ashamed at your condition today and that you would do business with the Lord. Here's a diagnostic, limpers. Limpers take the title Christian, but they have no real hatred of their sin. It doesn't bother them. They don't have angst over it. And, and, and the angst is, there, there's no angst over what an affront to the glory of God, the smallest sin in your mind is, let alone the sins of your action and your will. Again, Thomas Boston, he says this, does your offending a good God affect your heart with sorrow? And do you fear sin more than suffering? A limper goes many days without even thinking about their sin or being concerned about how their sin is an affront to God. Take the title Christian, not concerned about my sin. A limper has no affection for God. They have no real zeal or, 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 or passion for the things of God. Sure, Jesus might be a part of their vocabulary because they run in Christian circles, but he's not really a part of their heart's desire. They don't think about him. They don't cherish him. When they do think about God, honestly, a limper's thoughts are, are kind of humdrum, like, like God is boring, but necessary. I had a conversation with somebody recently this week, and uh, we were asking around the dinner table, we said, what's the, what's the most fun thing you've experienced recently? And, and one person around the dinner table said, walking with Jesus, that's, that's the most exciting thing in my life. Yeah, that's a Christian. Friends, one cannot be saved from their sin by an infinitely beautiful, compassionate, infinitely immutable, sovereign God and have no affection for God. It's impossible. 
Limpers have very little interaction with the Bible, number three, throughout the week. There's no longing to know God's word, no treasuring it in their heart. There's no hunger to conform one's life to God's word. That's something the pastor does, he talks about it, but it's not me. Limper, right? Why would that be the sign of a limper? Now, don't get me wrong, there are believers who are are brand new believers who are learning new habits and, and haven't really developed this yet. There are believers who are backsliding and are in a season where it's just been hard for a while, but, but God has them on this journey. They're going to get back. But, but there is an overall trend of a limper that they don't really care about the word of God. Maybe sometimes, but they're, they're fine. They could go through their whole life in terms of their own mind right now and never really engage that deeply personally. Limpers call themselves Christians, but have very little prayer in their life. Prayer, as long as they can remember it, is more of a burden than it is a joy. The concept of a prayer closet does not exist. The, profit of, the concept of getting on your knees definitely doesn't exist. Prayer is something that when you come to church, the pastor prays over you and you, you nod your head in, 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 in acknowledgement of it. Maybe if you're in a small group, yes. Maybe there's some rote tradition you do, like a, a short you know, prayer before a meal here and there. Those are wonderful things that they're done from a true heart. But a limper takes the title Christian, goes through the motions of Christianity, but... There is no relationship. Authentic Christianity is a relationship with a living God who knows you, who loves you, who cherishes you, and you know him, you love him, you cherish him. It's mutual. Lastly, limpers have an over-familiarity with the world. Limpers call themselves Christians, but if you put them side by side, and, and someone who didn't know two men, a non-believer and a believer, were to follow them around invisibly for a week, they'd look at their life outside of coming to church on Sunday, and they'd say, language is the same, media's the same, entertainment's the same, pursuits are the same, engagement with money is the same, thoughts throughout the day are the same, websites they visit are the same. It's an over-familiarity with the world. They forgot that Jesus said, you can't be of this world. You're not of this world, said Jesus. You're not of this world. Let me return to my own story again. A couple years after that moment, I remember I was in a, a Bible study. At this point, I, I was leading some Bible studies in college. I'd been saved my, around my senior year of high school. Um, and I'm in this Bible study, and, and, and one day, it's just been weighing on me. And I came to, most of the guys didn't show up that night, so it was just a couple of us, more of an intimate space. And I said this, I said, you know what? Brandon was the guy who was, who was mentoring me at the time. I said, Brandon, I feel, this is what I feel like. I feel like I'm standing on the edge of a cliff and I'm looking down, I'm looking down this cliff and, and what I wanna do is I just wanna jump off the cliff and I know that, that that's what it means to really follow Jesus. Like he's gonna catch me and it's gonna be incredible. I'm gonna feel the air going past me. I'm gonna be free and it's like I'm flying and I, I want it so bad, I just want to leap off the cliff. I said, Brandon, but I feel like I've jumped off, but like I'm hanging on the side of the cliff. I got one finger holding on to the rest of the world over here. I'm like, I'm clinging to it. And I can feel the air of God going by me. I know it's so good, but I'm clinging with one little finger because I don't want to let go of my old life fully. I still kind of like a lot of that. And so I just have this one finger latching on. Now, I was being really kind to myself. In reality, it was a full fist. I was holding on, not letting go. Is that you today? If you've been limping in the no man's land of Christianity, 
if you've been kind of limping around Jesus culture for a while, but, but you haven't been born again, listen to the words of Elijah. How long will you go limping between two different opinions? If the Lord is God, then follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. Don't be like the people of Israel that day who responded to that by, saying, by not saying a word. Now, perhaps you're in here today and you're saying, Rafe, I want that. I want to jump off. I, w- I want to just go. I want to be all in. How do I do that? What do I do? What are my next steps? I'm holding on to, Rafe. That's where I am today. So, so how do I, what does it look like to just run freely in Christ? Well, here's what it doesn't look like. It doesn't look like saying, okay, I'm just going to be a more disciplined Christian. I'm, I'm going to get my act together. I'm going to read my Bible more. Now I'm going to pray more. Yes, don't get me wrong. There's a lot of discipline in the Christian life, and those things will deepen your resolve over time. But that's not how you become a Christian. That's actually the motions of Christianity. That, that, that's, that's doing the motions. You have to be born again. And the way you do that is you come to the end of yourself. That's what it was for the prophets of Baal too, wasn't it? You look into a holy law and you see the depravity of your own sin. That you would go so long limping without fully making a decision about the beauty of Jesus. And you say even that is sin and worthy of judgment. And then in your heart of hearts, you look up and you see Christ offering himself to you on the cross, looking at you with compassion and sympathy, saying, I see you in your weakness. I know what it's like to be human. I had a human mind. I had a human heart. I had human flesh. And I poured it out on the cross for you. And you look up to Christ and you say, deep in the bottom of your soul, I choose to follow Jesus. I give up this clinging with one hand to the world over here. I'm not doing it anymore. And I'm following Jesus no matter the cost. He's worthy. He's beautiful. He has my attention. Jesus changed me from the inside out. I want to be a better wife. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better son, a better, better, better daughter. I want to be a better brother, better brother, sister. And not because I just got my act together, but because I got a lot to offer because I'm just following Jesus you got to look to Christ. He's got to change you from the inside. you got to get to the heart level of it. And the first step is recognizing you are a limper. If that's you today, don't leave this room before you make a decision to follow Jesus. The end of this story, in verse 39, they cry out, the Lord, he is God, the Lord, he is God. Why? They tasted of him. They saw him. They just had, God gifted them this momentary just image to see who he was in all his fullness. See him today. He stands ready to forgive you, ready to embrace you, ready to set your life on a new path, a life of following hard after God. He wants to do something in you today, church. Lastly, I'll close on this last point. The the final category is the prophet of God, the prophet of God. And he, for us, stands as the true believer, Elijah. Now, he thought he was alone, but he wasn't. He had 100 other prophets that were hidden. True believers know what it's like to be the prophet of God in this story. And uh, if you were a limper and, and you're in here today, and I'm gonna give you a chance to respond to that in just a little bit, but, but if that's you, I wanna I paint a picture for you of what it looks like to follow Jesus. It's different than what you might think. Notice a handful of things for Elijah. The world around him thought he was a troubler. Ahab comes to him, what do you want, you troubler of Israel? Yeah, Christians get that a lot. 
Matthew 7, Jesus says, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. Remember last week we studied uh, the story of Esther? What did Mordecai do? When, when Haman walked by and everyone was bowing down to him, did he bow down to the mob? Or did he stand there and say, I'm not bowing down to you. I, don't, I worship one God. Haman was the one guy, or Mordecai was the one guy who stood when everyone else bowed, and he caused a lot of problems because of that. Christians know what it's like to be labeled a troubler, but we take comfort in our God because you know, we're not trying to please man anymore. We're trying to please our God. Even when they label us all sorts of words, we say, it's okay, like, I, I'm with you. I'm following after you. Christians do that. John chapter 16, verse 33, I said these things to you that in, in me you might have peace. In the world you will have tribulation, but take heart, I have overcome the world. When you're labeled a troubler, Christian, take heart, Christ has overcome the world. Christians are marked by a true dependence on God in prayer. Remember Elijah, verse 37, answer me, O Lord, answer me, that this people might know that you, O Lord, are God, that you have turned their hearts back. There's a dependence on God right there. Well, what's he crying out that they might know you? Answer me, please. He's, he's put himself in a position where if God doesn't show up, he's done. And he's depending on God. True Christians, over time, they develop a lifestyle and a habit of life that if God doesn't show up, th- their world won't make sense. It, it would fall apart. Of course we need him. This is, this is how we live. Of course we need him. We develop that prayer muscle over time where we strengthen it and, and we love to go to God in prayer and call it because there's so many needs in our life. There's so many needs in our church life. God forbid that we don't bring them to the one who can answer all of them. And we develop this habit of watching God answer prayers slowly over time. Number three, true believers have a desire to see God magnified. They have a desire to see God magnified. I love that song we sing in this church, Christ be magnified. Verse 36, at the time of the offering of the oblation, Elijah the prophet came near and said, O Lord, God of Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, let it be known this day that you are God in Israel, that I'm I'm just your servant. That's what he's saying. I'm just a nobody. I'm just your servant. And that I have done all these things at your word. It reminds me of John the Baptist language. Less of me, more of you, Jesus. True believers have this overwhelming sense in their life that they, they're not interested in, in this. They're interested in that. And, and it's this upward thing. I don't want to discourage any true believers in this room. Look, th- th- this is what I'm looking for. What you should be looking is you're questioning your heart today. Are the seeds of this in you over the long haul? If you might be a very immature or new believer, praise God, God's got a hold of you. If, th- if these seeds are there, Let us invest in those, see fruit come out of them and strengthen over time. But if the seed's not there, you're not a true believer. A believer has so seen Christ and had their life changed by Christ, yes, they pray like that. I'm gonna embarrass a couple in this church right now and I'm gonna hear about it later. There's a couple in this church that exemplifies this characteristic. Everywhere I turn, I see this couple serving. I I meet with people and they're going through hard stuff, and there they are. This couple has already showed up, already opened their home, 
Are, they're just behind the scenes. No one knows it. Travis and Catherine Maddox. You guys blow me away. Sorry to call you out. I'm just gonna do it right now, though. Everywhere I turn, and, and, and we're saying woo because all of you have been loved by them. But it's so weighed on me this week. I, I, just process, I, was, I was reflecting on that couple. And everywhere I go, everyone I minister to, they've already opened their home to them. They've already cooked a meal. They've already brought them a meal. They've already brought me meals. <laughs> this week, there's something about that that's so hidden. And if you know them, it's so humble. That's this. Christ be magnified, us be less. Just this heart of certain, that's true Christianity. And number four, the true Christian knows the comfort of God. There are many more marks I could list. The old guys, they had lists of like 50, 60 marks. That's for a year of preaching we could go through these things, but... They know the comfort of God. Elijah lived a very difficult life. He, he, he laid by a river and was fed because God sent him ravens that had meat in their mouth. <laughs> he was hated by all of Israel. Even when the other prophets saw him, they were afraid. Obadiah shows up to the prophet Elijah. He says, Elijah, get away from me. If I'm associated with you, they're gonna kill me. He had a very difficult life. But over and over again, God shows up and comforts him, speaks to him tenderly. And the Christian, the authentic Christian, knows what it's like to go through hardship and have the Holy Spirit comfort them in their hardship. In fact, that's actually a really important mark of a believer. When they think on their life, they don't just think about the hardships they've gone through, but they look back and they say, look at how God has, has led me through all of it. That's, that's the first move that their mind makes because they're a true believer. They look back and they say, God is so good. Despite all I've been through, he has comforted me, he's strengthened me, he sent his, his people in my life at just the right moments. And I didn't know how it was gonna work out, but, but he was, the wind blew in just the right way that, that, that he had me the whole time. It's a true believer. Oh, Christian, God loves to comfort the afflicted. He loves to meet you in your most difficult trials and whisper in your ear and say, I am here, I am with you. There's no pain that you'll ever go through that Christ is not intimately familiar with. Intimately. On the cross, what were his words? He cried out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He went further in suffering than any Christian will ever go. He experienced truly hell on the cross. The forsakenness of God. His suffering is such that he now comes to you and he moves towards you in compassion and he comforts you as one who has suffered in your place and he loves to comfort you. Whatever you're going through this week, whatever hardship you're thinking of, look unto Christ. Know that he's there. Know that he loves you and he is the one who's been leading you through this up to this point. False prophets, limpers, and true believers which one are you today? One of the hardest things to do is if you've been a limper and you've convinced everyone around you that you're a true believer, one of the hardest things to do is to conf confess that actually you've never been born again. Because it feels like you're gonna be covered in shame. And the, the great irony is that that's actually probably the thing in your life that God will most use to free you. 
Because the scriptures say that when someone puts their faith in Jesus, the angels in heaven rejoice. (laughs) Did you know that? If one person leaves this room deciding to follow Jesus today for the first time, there's gonna be a party in heaven as the angels in heaven rejoice over the salvation of a soul. And if it's two people, it's double the party as they all rejoice over the second soul. And can I tell you this? Your church family and those who truly love you will look at you and they'll say, I'm so glad you've chosen to follow Jesus. Let me invite the band to come up. Here's what we're gonna do. I think God needs to do some business. In my own heart, he needs to do some business right now. And, and we have a, a practice here at this church where during the last set of songs, we invite you into a space of prayer. And so can I have you stand up right now? We're gonna have a chance to respond, however the Holy Spirit's working in your own heart. As the band plays these final two songs, you are welcome to sing aloud. You're welcome to do whatever you need to do. I encourage you to take some time in prayer. If you came with somebody and you wanna pray with them, Fill this space with prayer. We're a church. We pray. That's one of the marks of what we do. If you're a husband here with your wife, can I encourage you? This is one of the ways you lead your your wife. Put your arm around them at some point during these next two songs and just pray. God, you're so good to us. Thank you. You don't have to do anything long or overwhelming. Just pray briefly. And some of you, if you're in this room and you need to respond in any way, we're going to have deacons made available all on the back of the room. We're not going to have them come up front today, but we're going to go to the back of the room, spread out along the walls, We'll have deacons and elders available. And it, I want to encourage you, if, if you're being convicted in the heart today, and maybe you're saying, you know, I'm not sure, but I want to make sure I leave here sure. Don't do that alone. Go find somebody. We're here. We want to pray with you. And we want you to join in the worship of the saints. So do what you need to do over these next two songs. Worship, pray, go to one of our deacons, however you need to be ministered to. Use this space. It's for you. Lord, we love you. We give you the remainder of this service. Holy Spirit, have your way with this church. You are the head of this church, Jesus. We love you so much, and we just want to magnify the name of Jesus. In Christ's name, amen.